Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Erica Schickel is the author of The Big Hurt, a memoir, and You're Not the Boss of Me. Her essays and journalism have been featured in the Los Angeles Times, Tin House, Ravishly, Bust Magazine, Salon, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. She lives in Los Angeles. Welcome, Erica. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Big Hurt, a memoir. Thanks for having me, Zibby. It's really exciting to be here. I love this show. Oh, thank you. So in this book, I want you to tell listeners what it's about and sort of what made you decide to write this memoir. But in the memoir, there's a character writing a book called The Big Hurt. And so is it really okay for you to call this book The Big Hurt too? (laughs) Uh, That needs a little explaining. To answer your first question, I wrote this book because I I absolutely had to in order to understand and save my own life. I mean, just at a very sort of visceral level, you know. And I started writing it about in 2008 after my first book, which was a funny memoir called You're Not the Boss of Me, Adventures of a Modern Mom. That came out. And it was time to write my second book. And what am I going to write about? Oh, I'll write about my very colorful, fun, zany, bohemian boarding school. And as I began to look at that story, where I did have an amazing growth experience from 1978 to 82, I was sent there, had an amazing time. And then six weeks before graduation, I was seduced by a music teacher there. And the school found out and he was fired and I was effectively expelled from the school. So I started, I wanted to write just sort of a funny boarding school memoir. And suddenly this story bit back at me because I had been ignoring it for all of my adult life until that point. Wow. 
And so tell me what happened from 2008 to, to now. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I started writing the book and we will recall that around 2008 and nine, Facebook came into full flower. And it was a time where people were finding each other who had been lost to each other over years and decades. And one of the people I reconnected with was my best friend from high school, a man named CJ Dallet who was the only person who had known about the affair. So he comes back to me and tells me his version of the story, a version in which I had been abused by the school, by this teacher, and that a traumatic event had happened to me. So suddenly the scales have fallen from my eyes and Rather than actually do the work of confronting this incredibly painful story and a past that was too big and deep and scary to fully parse, I thought it would be easier to have a, a love affair with the notorious crime writer who I had met and sort of had been holding in the back of my mind for a couple of years, a man that I had sort of I had made him sort of the locus of my lost eroticism, my sense of myself as a bad girl, which is sort of this burden I've been carrying my whole life. And this affair blew up the marriage. I was married. I had two kids. And it just turned my life upside down. And as I became more involved with this man, I began to realize that what I was doing was repeating the story from high school with him. I was reenacting it. I'd found another inappropriate, older, pedagogic man to take over my life. And so that forced the book into an even deeper level of inquiry and trying to sort of trace the patterns of my experience, and then also sort of connect them to larger patterns in, in my family, in the culture I was raised in, and in the history of our culture at large at that time, in sort of late 70s, early 80s, which was a, a very predatory time. Well, the way that you wrote about how this affair began and the transition from it being an inkling in your mind to being something on which you acted was so well written. And the way the way you used metaphors and like all of this, the writing itself was so powerful and it was just amazing. So I was hoping I could just read maybe a line or two, if that's okay with you. Please. Thank you. I love it. Let's see. Well, this was funny too. Okay. Well, we held the vertical line like the good wasps we were. But the horizontal beckoned. Slowly and inevitably, the boundaries began to crumble. We wondered whether it wouldn't be more comfortable to work in the living room side by side on the sofa. After a few days of this, we discussed the pros and cons of lying down next to each other on the sofa so that we might rest. We needed to know what it felt like to lie next to each other. And after all, it was just a sofa, not a bed. In our cockamamie construction, it seemed acceptable. And so it came to pass in the late summer afternoon that I first laid my head down on Sam Spade's chest and felt I had finally found home. I love that, but it's not even the most beautiful. Hold on. There was this one analogy you had that I have to find. Hold on. Give me two seconds. <laughs> A writer will always wait to hear her work read back. To uh, her. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will find it in a second, but it was basically about that feeling of the person like winking at you and feeling like 
you could ignore this person sort of like tapping on your shoulder, but ultimately you yeah. couldn't and you had to succumb. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yes, I do. I, will it's, find it's, it's as weird. I think you're referring to a passage where I first meet the, the character I call Sam Spade in the book, who is, who's the lover in the book. And when I met him, it was as though, I think I write something winked on inside of me, like that, yep. the, the, the sort of inner girl that I had once been, that I had been running away from for 30 years she sort of woke up and smelled her prey, you know, and tossed her hair for him, you know. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. And that was very much what the experience was like. I had held a version of myself at arm's length. And what I needed to do was go back and I needed to confront that girl. And when I did, I found out that not only was she, yes, naughty, rebellious, sensual, you know, all of these things that, you know, teenage girls just get to be are automatically are, but she was also a hurt girl, you know, and, and that was the piece of it that I had never understood. And when I saw that hurt, it was like falling down a well, I became incredibly sad for a period of years as I sort of wrestled with the betrayal of that, of my family, of the school I had gone to, of, you know, every adult who had been in charge of me had, had betrayed me essentially. And that's trauma. You know, I, I, I had to understand my, my own trauma and that so much of this book is about that. I mean, it's, I, and, and, and one of the, the conflicts or the tensions in the book is that I don't want to be traumatized. You know, I don't ever, I never saw myself as a victim of anything. My identity is very wrapped up in my self-sufficiency, of course, because I was raised by narcissists. So, you know, I'm very, I'm, I don't want anyone to help me. You know, I can do this. And I really had to let that go and fall into the the sadness inside of the hurt, you know, in order to process it and write about it. Well, that passage I I do have. Oh, please. (laughs) That one I can find. You said, the problem was the story wasn't funny. This is about how you were starting to write that other book. And the more I rummaged through the memories I had put away three decades ago, the sadder it became. This wasn't the story of a rebellious bad girl. This was the story of an abandoned child. Worse, the climax, my expulsion from boarding school, which I had imagined writing as a kind of sexcapade gone awry, was neither fun nor romantic. I was 44 years old. I had two daughters nearing the age I had been when my family got rid of me. The idea of abandoning either of them in any way was revulsive and unimaginable to me. What if every decision I had made since 1982 was built on the faulty premise that I was a bad girl? What if all along I had just been a very hurt girl trying to survive in a predatory world? My story wasn't comedy. It was tragedy. The minute I understood that, I stopped writing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was hard. <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I grapple with in telling the story and in talking about it, you know, I mean, the trauma piece is huge. And, you know, one of the things that's coming up is sort of the ubiquity of it, of how we sort of carry it around with us and how it can happen, you know, in, in, inside of very privileged lives, which is 
a life, the life that I had and that I'm describing, describing in the book. You know, I grew up in Manhattan, the daughter of a, a well-known film critic, Richard Schickel, and uh, a novelist, my mother, Jill Whedon. It was, I went to the best schools. I was sent to the best camps. I was given a beautiful education, but I was emotionally abandoned by my parents. And so, you know, it, it, sort of teasing that piece of it out in the book and and then putting it back into context is really kind of what I'm trying to do here. You know, this is not special to me. You know, this is something that period people can experience anywhere. Can you talk a little more about how you were abandoned by your mother at age 14 and like what that looked like to you? Well, yeah, I can. I mean, what it looked like was her basically, you know, I, my parents had an ugly divorce when I was about 12. So by the time I reached puberty, you know, I was acting out. And my mother, because I was doing a little shoplifting and lying and sneaking around as unsupervised girls will do in the 70s, my mother decided that I was a danger to her, that I, that was something about me that was threatening to her. Now I understand that it, that is her own trauma and that she was actually handing down to me a hurt that had been engendered in her by her parents. And that what I, I have come to understand that it, what I was suffering from was epigenetic trauma. I mean, you know, it, and, and I actually am able to illustrate that in the book. I'm a third generation of women in my family to sleep with a teacher. So you know, uh, that's that's when I understood, you know, that my mother was no longer on my side. And then they, I got sent away to London to be an au pair when I was 14. And I did some shoplifting in London subconsciously to get myself sent home. It worked. I was sent back to the States. And instead of being brought back into the bosom of my family and going back to the Dalton School in the fall, which is where I had been going, I was told that I was going to be sent off to boarding school. And that's how I ended up at, at Buxton at the boarding school. Wow. In 70, the fall of 78. And then the boarding school story is one of me keep trying to go home over the summers and over breaks and stuff. My, you know, the, the, the time in the culture was one of people becoming adults suddenly were given the car keys to their own lives. You know, my parents were raised in the 50s and or actually in the 40s and the 50s. And suddenly here was the sexual revolution and everybody was, you know, wanting to get a piece of that action, including both of my parents. My father went out and swung <laughs> like big time. And my mother ended up falling in love and moving in with my best friend's father. So everything was just insane at that time, you know, and kids got lost. And, you know, one of the things this book, The Big Hurt, has done is really connected to that sort of vein uh, that was happening in Gen for Gen Xers. And, and I guess really what I am is Generation Jones, which is sort of that. <laughs> That generation between gen, uh, the boomers and Gen X, you know, 60, I think it's like, you know, it ends at 65. So I'm pretty much in the pocket for that. Wow. You had an amazing, by the way, chapter title about the sort of three generations of teachers. I, mm -hmm. As I was reading it, I'm like, this is definitely not what I'm going to listen to in the car with my kids because of all yeah. the characters, which is fine. And it served the story very well. Hold on, I'm trying to find this section. It's called A Brief 
family history of teacher blankers. Yes. <laughs> I'm just going to believe I don't that. mince words in this book. You don't mince words. But you know what? Like the rawness of your story sort of comes through. I mean, there's a lot of like anger underlying a lot of this, right? It's all coming out, right? It's not like, it's not just sadness. It's, no. it's madness. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and, you know, remember that while I'm having these revelations about the truth of what happened to me and my generation in that period of time, I simultaneously have two children who are the ages I was when all this stuff happened. So it's sort of that, you know, and I think a lot of us has have this experience as parents, as mothers, where suddenly we see our parents with our children and we get like this weird, you know, window seat into kind of like sort of low level abuse or the ways our parents talked to us or dismissed us, you know, I mean, it was very, a very intense time figuring all this stuff out. And yeah, I was angry about it for sure. There was that one scene where you saw your mother with your daughter, I think. And yeah, your hackles went up and yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My mother was sort of terrible with my kids. I mean, my kids loved her because they're such dear people, but I mean, you know, my mother was very dismissive with them and sometimes a little bit physically abusive with them. And it was horrifying to see. Yeah. Sorry. 
So are you glad you've gone through this whole, I mean, you say it saved your life, but it sounds like it was very painful in the process of doing it. Are you glad you even went down this path? Are you like oh, super grateful yes. or are you regretful, super grateful? So, so grateful. You know, it's funny. I, you know, I finished writing this book over a year ago, you know, edits and so forth for publication. And in the time since I finished writing the book, I've been, I've read the Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Trauma, The Body Keeps the Score about trauma. And I was just listening to an interview with him on, with Krista Tippett. And he was talking about how trauma is, is healed by these sort of non-direct approaches. And, and he's talking, he was talking about yoga as, you know, trauma victims need to like anchor themselves in their bodies. And I sort of fell into a very intense yoga practice at the same time I was dealing with this and I didn't put it together until like yesterday. I also began experimenting or working with psychedelics. And I, I, there's a piece in the book where I have, where I drink ayahuasca and I go back and I actually visit my mother, my father, Sam Spade and myself all as small children. And I, and I, it opened my heart up to them and to myself to a degree that was deeply profound and changed me. And then finally, the act of writing, telling the story. And, you know, it took me 12 years to write this because I had to understand it in order to write it, live through it in order to write it. But it, that is profoundly healing. And one of the messages I've come away with is like people need to write about themselves and to find and to reparent themselves by retelling their stories, taking their stories back from the people who told them who they were when they were kids. And look at what that, what was really going on and what people, what stakes people had in that and say, you know what? I'm now going to tell my own story. Even if it's just to yourself in your own private diary, it's a really helpful, important thing to do. Wow. I love that. You also in the book talk a lot about, or not, you know, you're having an affair with an author, you're an author yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, you had just come out and you, you track sort of the literary community and, and the, the, some of the inside stuff that happens among different writers and different scenarios. And Mm -hmm. do you think relationships between two authors have like a certain, you know, color tint to them because of the introspection or anything, or I don't know, what do you think about having a relationship sort of in the context of the greater literary scene, or at least as it was at the time? Well, I mean, it's at the time, first of all, my literary career suffered terribly because of this affair. You know, there is so much misogyny in literary culture. It's kind of staggering. And because this man was a famous novelist and, you know, I was sort of labeled as a coattail rider and all of that. And I will not deny that there there was something in his in his literary being presentation that was very compelling to me because it was an Oedipal bond. Let's not forget, my father was a famous, prolific first draft writer. So, you know, while people thought maybe I was trying to, you know, level up my career by being with this man, actually, I was being just deeply Oedipal, as both of us were. His mother had been famously murdered, raped and murdered when he was 10 years old. 
And he was looking for the pale skinned, redheaded woman to replace her. And, you know, that little section you read, Zibby, about me lying down and putting my head on his chest is kind of ground zero for that relationship because it was a trauma bond. And it was so much bigger and deeper than any kind of like literary ambition. <laughs> you know, if it had just been that, I might have I might have gotten out of it sooner. But, you know, it was it was a really deeply emotionally compelling relationship. No, no, you, I didn't mean to suggest it wasn't. No, no, no. I know. You, you can tell that from, you know, from the outset. I mean, I mean, even just the way he, from his first sort of response to you when you reached out to him and writing and the, yeah. you know, he's this guy. It's like, oof, you know, it's intense. I mean, the yeah. whole thing, it's like very intense. And I can't imagine, it must have been, it would have been very hard for anybody to, to you know, resist some of that stuff. So. Oh. It was impossible. But here's the thing that was interesting about it. And it was, it was sort of an ongoing thing in our relationship. He was he was a sort of had this identity as being a conjurer. He was a man who would lie in the dark and think about women and wait for the phone to ring. And he was a famous Lothario. I mean, you know, and in this case, I conjured him. Mm. I had met him and I understood that he that there was a connection between us. I sensed it first. I thought about him for two years and then I conjured him. I friended him on Facebook. You know, I mean, I, it wasn't a simple, uh, you know, this bad man took advantage of me kind of a story at all. Although, you know, he was sort of a bad man in the end and he did in many ways take advantage of me, but it was mutually assured destruction. It was, we both had a deep agenda that we weren't even that aware of that was sort of compelling us through the relationship. No, you did a really good job of showing that, right? Like you wanted to click the button to start whatever on Facebook and yet you went outside and your beautiful garden or whatever and yeah. like buttered around and you're like, and then I hit the button yep. and we're like, okay, now it's getting good. <laughs> What's it going to happen next? Wow. Well, first of all, it's one thing to have the kind of introspection and the level of sort of self-analysis that you possess, which is really like notable and amazing, but it's another to put it out there for everyone in the world to join you in that in that process and also to have the real characters of your life exist. So how has that been since this book has come out? Mostly it has been good, you know, in terms of writing around about real people, you know, there are some real names in there, but mostly those are people who are either dead or have given me permission and read the pages. There was some, there's been some backlash in my personal life from former friends who betrayed me even further as regards the book, a man who works in the, in the literary world who betrayed a trust. Anyway, there's been some bad stuff, but mostly, you know, it's been really, really positive. And, you know, as to the question of like, how did I put all of that truth onto the page? I've always just been that person, you know, I've always believed in the truth, in the power of the truth. And I even say in the book, you know, and it's a childish belief, I think, on some level that I, I keep hanging on to that the application, the conscious application of love and truth can solve any problem between people. 
it may not actually be true, but I still cling to it. And that's the spirit in which I wrote the book. I just, I needed to tell the story. I understood it was a story that was bigger than me. And I needed to, I had to bring, I had to leave everything on the page if it was going to work. Wow. Well, the end result was fantastic and so immersive. And I mean, wow. So thank you for taking me on your on your journey, the ups and the downs, and it's intense and amazing. And thank you for putting it out there and not keeping it to yourself. I mean, it's going to help a lot of people and raise awareness about lots of things and the particularly the role of the what role we play when things happen, right? Like, is it like is it a part of me? Did I cause this? Or anyway. Yeah, I'm really in- I'm very interested in that question, you know, and 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 the answer is yes, but we are acting on things that we don't even understand. Yeah. And and I also just want to say for your for your listeners too, you know, I mean, this is a big heavy book and it's full of truth and it's full of uncomfortable things. But it's also a very it's a funny book. It it has it has it's got a good plot. It's a page turner, you know, it, it came out sort of with the voice I wanted to have out in the world. I wanted it to be a good read, you know, and luckily, or not so luckily, I was given plenty of material to make it a good read. So, yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, I hope I didn't paint this as too dark. No, no, um, not at all. Okay. So what now? What are you going to do with your life? No. <laughs> God, that's the question, Zibby. I mean, you know, I'm actually really, I'm I'm wondering myself, you know, I mean, I'm a little bit suffering from a combination of having given birth to the big book of my life and having survived a pandemic. And I, you know, the literary world has changed, the larger world has changed, I have an understanding of like what my gifts and my message is. And I, right now, I mean, I'm going to keep writing, of course. I mean, I've begun another book, but I'm really trying to under, figure out where I can have the most impact in, in, with the rest of my good life ahead of me. You know, I'm in my 50s and, you know, people in our 50s, we like to say we've got 20 good years left. You know, <laughs> And I want to really I really want to use them to the, the best to get to get other people to open up to their own healing, you know, and self-love and understanding. Wow. Well, there's no lack of work in that arena. That's for sure. Unfortunately, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? My advice to aspiring authors, you know, everybody always says, just sit down and write. And that's always the good first piece of advice. And sometimes the hardest for us to take on a moment to moment basis. But in terms of writing, you know, memoir or writing of telling your story, I, I urge people to look at the story and write, just write down the first version. And then look at it again and go, I need more detail here. And then look at it again and go, okay, that that story is about that, but what is it really about? What am I really trying to get at here? And just going digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And that takes many versions, you know. I wrote and rewrote this book many times to get it where it is. And, and that's because not because I didn't write it well the first time. It's just that I needed to go deeper and learn more. That's great advice. 
Excellent. Erica, thank you. Thanks so much for chatting today. And yeah, I hope we stay in touch and I'll be following along to see what you decide to do. (laughs) Me too, Zibby. Congratulations on all your success and thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 